This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 21st, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Deputy News Editor David Malakoff is here to talk about scientific issues the next U.S. president might face. And Jessica Bodie is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. We cannot produce this podcast without the help of listeners like you. Become a member of AAAS, the world's largest multidisciplinary scientific membership organization, and publisher of the Science Family of Journals this month and receive a free AAAS backpack. Visit AAAS.org slash support science to become a member today. Now we have Jessica Bodie, an intern for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on hearing in jumping spiders. Judging from the reaction to this story, jumping spiders may be supplanting cats as the internet's favorite animal. Why do jumping spiders get so much love online, Jessica? They've kind of like taken over the internet a little bit because they're so cute. They have these big giant eyes and they're fuzzy and little and they're only like, they're all less than an inch long. They're teeny. They kind of look like stuffed animals. I think I think they're adorable. So they're fuzzy and they have big eyes. Big round eyes. That makes you cute. Even yeah. if you're a spider. And they're not menacing like a big scary wolf spider. They're just kind of friendly. And, you know, a lot of them have really cool colors, like bright blues and bright greens. Their mating rituals are adorable. They just stick their front arms right up in the air and wave at each other. It's like the cutest thing ever. And they're also really curious. So they like to go investigate what's going around in their environment, but they're also kind of skittish and terrified, especially of humans. So when they get scared, they usually just freeze and look around to figure out what's going on. And then they just run away. <laughs> so... uh it's been known for a while that they have really, really spectacular eyesight, and that's kind of their main sensory intake. That's really how they experience the world. And like other spiders, too, they sense kind of what's going on through vibrations through the ground. Without ears, you know, it's kind of been out of the question for so long that they'd be able to hear auditory sounds. But obviously, some researchers had their doubts about that. What made them decide to look more closely for ear or ear-like abilities in mm -hmm. the jumping spider? 
Yeah, it was actually kind of an accident at first. So they were studying the neurobiology of these jumping spiders to begin. They wanted to see how the brain processed different signals from vision first. So they put these tiny, tiny electrodes in spider brains and they would look at data from the electrode when they would get when the spiders would get a new visual signal. And when they were doing this experiment, the researchers would, you know, like shuffle chairs around, they'd laugh, they'd talk, they'd clap their hands sometimes. And they suddenly realized when they were doing that, that the brain activity in the spiders would spike. So the neurons were talking in the spider brains and they said, hold the phone. Are these spiders hearing us? And so after that, they decided to reorganize the whole experiment and test for hearing in spiders. And this was a little challenging because, as I said, as you mentioned before, they can detect vibrations that's known. So how do they cross that off the list as what they're sensing? They finagled this metal box type thing that they put the spiders in that would cancel out any vibrations through the medium or beneath the spider's feet. So they would only be reacting to, so if they played a sound, they would only be reacting to airborne sound. And that sound that they played was a key as well. Yes. With the electrode in these spiders' brains, they put them in this box and then they just scared the heck out of them with the sound of one of their predators, the buzz of a wasp. When they get scared, they stand still. So they see this behavioral mm-hmm. response to the sound. And they also saw some reactions through the electrode. Mm-hmm. In this new experiment, they decided to put the electrode in a part of the spider's brain that they thought was receptive to sound. So when they played that scary sound and the spiders froze, their brain activity also spiked, which made the researchers believe that they were actually hearing auditory sounds. This experiment is way more complicated than you think it would have to be. So, for example, it was very difficult to even get an electrode into a tiny spider like this. That's right. Yeah. Spiders, at least jumping spiders, are, you know, their bodies are kind of, they have positive pressure. So they're kind of pumped up like car tires would be. So if you just poke a hole in them, the spiders would just literally explode to avoid, you know, exploding all their spiders. One of the researchers on the paper found a method or he developed a method to just do a teeny, teeny, tiny hole in the spider's head. Then an even tinier microelectrode was inserted. So he found a way around exploding his spiders. Do they think that this hearing ability that they're seeing in jumping spiders is unique to this species? I mean, do we know other spiders can hear or is this this new ground? Yeah, so this is the first time it's ever been documented. But the way that they think the spiders are actually receiving sound, because, of course, they don't have ears or any eardrums, is through these very, very sensitive hairs on their legs. And not just jumping spiders have those. You know, a lot of other spiders have those kind of hairs. So researchers are kind of speculating that it's not just jumping spiders, that so many other spiders can also hear sounds. Next up, we have a story on adapting to altitude. The story stems from a project called Altitude Omics, which aims to look at how exactly people acclimate to high altitude. For this research, they brought people up a tall mountain in Bolivia, including athletes. What was it like for these test subjects, Jessica, to go that high and then try to do sporty things? Yeah, so this mountain in the Andes, in the Bolivian Andes, was over 5,000 meters tall. That's three miles. And oxygen concentration there is pretty much half of what it would be at sea level. So it's it's pretty difficult to do anything athletic, running or walking or even just climbing stairs. They did have a bunch of volunteers. A lot of them were really physically fit. Some of them were competitive runners, competitive sprinters. And they had them ascend on this mountain 
on this 3.2 kilometer path. And initially they had a lot of trouble. They couldn't even make it to the top for a while. It took them two weeks to even get to the top. You know, they would try every day and then took them that long just to be able to do it. And some of them were very embarrassed. You know, one woman who was, she was a competitive 1500 meter runner. She said it was the hardest thing she's ever done. After two weeks, their bodies adapted and they could make it all the way to the top. And the researchers just wanted to know why. Before this experiment, we, we knew about the adaptation, right? But what, what did people think was happening in the body? In our blood, we have this protein called hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is what transports and delivers oxygen all throughout our bodies so our cells can use it and burn fuel and make energy. Previously, when people's bodies would just adapt and they could suddenly tolerate or they could be more active at higher altitudes, researchers thought that their blood was just producing more hemoglobin, that they had more hemoglobin. But that's kind of a fishy explanation because to make new blood cells and hemoglobin, that would take weeks and weeks. And that adaptation to high altitudes can happen in days. Right. The next thing they did here in this in this current study was send everyone back down the mountain. So go back to sea level for two weeks and then bring them back up again. What happened upon their return? When they tried to climb that path again two weeks later, it was like their bodies remembered their prior experience and they got to the top as easily as they had right before they left the mountain. That was their subjective experience. What does the research say about changes in their blood, changes in their metabolism, things like that? To figure out exactly what was going on, researchers looked at these athletes' blood cells. So they found that their blood cells, their hemoglobin, were just acting differently, not that they had multiplied, but they just had different behavior. So they found changes in how tightly or loosely this hemoglobin in their blood was holding on to the oxygen. So they think that because they eventually adapted and got better, that these changes in the hemoglobin was more efficiently delivering and transporting oxygen in the blood. They also found that these changes, which are affected by cell metabolism, are also much more complex than they thought. And to really figure out exactly how hemoglobin is being changed and what exactly it's doing, they think they'll need to do a lot more research to fully understand how it's working. One of the the headlines I saw a lot about the story was that this is a long-lasting effect. These people were on the mountain for two weeks, but then they were two weeks away and the change was still apparent in their bodies. Does that mean that this this could last for a very long time? Basically, what the researchers are proposing is that these these changes are happening just permanently to the blood cells. And blood cells usually live for around 120 days. So that's pretty much the duration of how long this effect would last. One thing that surprised me about this research is how broad the applications of this finding truly are. This isn't just about being a better mountain climber or a better runner. Yeah, so it's useful in a medical context as well. So if you think about a condition that could be affected where oxygen is low in the blood, like stroke or cancer or heart disease or anemia, uh, that could be useful there. Or if you consider traumatic injuries where somebody loses a lot of blood, if doctors could kick your blood's oxygen carrying capacity like into high gear and make it really run quick and deliver a lot more oxygen, then it could buy the doctors a lot more time to save your life even. So that's one application. And then Something else that I think that's really interesting is that it could be used for space travel. So, you know, if humans are in a spaceship traveling to Mars, if they could use up less oxygen, if they can make their blood more efficient at using the oxygen they have, they could conserve more oxygen on their ship or their space station. And it would ultimately make space travel and existence just easier and better. Lastly, we have a story on the elusive Higgs bison. All right, let's start with that, Jesse. I really can't get past the name here. 
pig's bison. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. It's one of the best puns ever in existence. <laughs> so over this past decade, these researchers have been looking at how bison have existed and evolved in the late Ice Age, which was around 20,000 years ago. So they would sequence bones of this animal called the steppe bison. They'd look at the DNA and they would find certain sections that were just really out of place. And they thought that was really strange. And they had an inkling that some other bison species existed because of this. And this theoretical bison that they weren't sure existed, but they had some fragmentary information about. Yeah, yeah. They had not enough concrete information to say for sure that it existed, but they were pretty sure. So they called this elusive beast the Higgs bison, which is after the particle that was theorized and suspected to exist for 48 years. And they finally discovered it in 2012. But yeah, it's a nice physics reference. (laughs) Well, and this is all taking place in Europe, right? Mm -hmm, Right. So they were looking all across Europe and parts of Russia and actually down towards Georgia as well. So they weren't really sure where to look next for clues to their Higgs bison's existence. So they asked these French cave scientists about how bison were painted in cave art across the late Ice Age. And that's where they said, you know what? We do think there's another bison. What what did they see in the cave paintings? The cave paintings were in the Lascaux and Pergosset caves in France. And so they found that cave art from between 20,000 and 18,000 years ago totally depicted a steppe bison, you know, so long horns, really hefty, robust forequarters, like it was kind of top-heavy almost, like imbalanced. But 5,000 years later in those caves, a new bison started to appear, and it was more proportional and balanced. It had longer legs and smaller horns. So these researchers really, really knew they were onto something here, so they decided to do some genetic testing. So they started with a little bit of genetic evidence, and they got this painting, and then they went and found a bunch more. Where did they go to get samples for this next level of the study? Yeah, so they went and got ancient bison bones and teeth from 20 different sites across Russia and Europe and also Georgia. And they took mitochondrial and nuclear DNA. They were able to narrow down when they wanted to look for a shift in the genetics of the bison that would signify a new species. And that's kind of exactly what they found. They found that 5,000 years after that initial steppe bison was being depicted in the caves, that this Higgs bison ended up in existence. And then the genetics of this new Higgs bison are very unexpected. Right. So it's actually a hybrid of that steppe bison and another species, which is kind of, it's a cow-like mammal called the oryx. And that was pretty unexpected, too, because hybridized animals don't usually arise in new species. Classic example is the liger, you know, the lion and the tiger. That was a new species that was created by a hybrid of two other animals, but the liger can't reproduce itself. You know, it's sterile, so that's not a very sustainable new species, whereas this Higgs bison was a completely sustainable new species, and it evolved, and it ended up, its descendants eventually became the European bison. Okay, Jessica, why don't you tell us what else is on the site this week? In the latest news, we've got a story about a new icy object in space that could show us more about Planet Nine. And also a story about how facial expressions aren't as universal as we thought. On Science Insider, our science policy blog, we have a story about Europe landing on Mars and another about Bob Dylan's impact on science. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Sarah. Jessica Bodie is an intern for our online daily news site. 
I'm Sarah Crusty. The U.S. presidential election is right around the corner. Though it may not be part of the campaign rhetoric right now, the next president will have some tough scientific issues to sort out. David Malikoff, a deputy news editor here at Science, and also he runs the science policy blog, Science Insider, is here with some science lessons for the next president. David, how easy are these things to predict? I mean, historically, it seems there are always some surprises from the scientific quarter. Yeah, you know, I think most presidents come into office expecting to carry out their campaign promises, you know, boost the economy, reform education, deal with national security issues. And But what we've realized when we looked back at presidents all the way back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt is that every president ends up sort of getting blindsided by these big science-related issues. There are examples just all over the place. Uh, Obama had to deal with the Deepwater Horizon spill. Gerald Ford ran into a huge political quagmire uh, because he had to deal with the swine, the rise of swine flu. They, yeah, they found an H1N1 virus that they thought was going to kill a lot of people. They started a fast track vaccination program. They had all kinds of problems with communications and missteps. And some people actually think that program helped cost Ford the election against Jimmy Carter in November. Let's start with a science lesson for the next president, that's related to climate change, which would not be a surprise to any president. But right now we're going to talk more specifically about rising sea levels. What might the next president need to know about changing seas? Yeah, so sea level rise is one of the six issues that we uh, chose to sort of write up little crash lessons that we think the next president should learn. The idea would be if somebody could give a 10-minute bullet point talk to the president, these are some issues that they might want to cover. Uh, so one is sea level rise. And the interesting thing about sea level rise, as our reporter Paul Vusen uh, points out, is that we think of sea level rise as occurring at the same rate all the way across the globe. So, for example, the forecasts say if we continue emitting greenhouse gases at the rate we're doing it now, sometime in the next century, sea levels could rise by about half a meter. But from a president's perspective, what's important, it's, it's like politics. All politics are local, and it turns out all sea level rise is local too. And there are variations in how fast the sea is rising in different places. The sea is rising, sea level is rising much faster, double or triple the global average along the eastern coast of the United States for a variety of reasons. Sometimes the land is sinking. Sometimes there are changes in the gravitational pull of the Earth because of the melting of ice sheets as far away as Antarctica. Sometimes there are other factors, geological factors that come into play. But the point is, if you live in Miami Beach or you live on the coast of Virginia or North Carolina, you are already experiencing sea level rise. High tides are flooding your roads, threatening your sewage treatment plants and things like that. So, you know, this is likely an issue that the next president is going to have right on their desk. This is very important because... 40% of us in the U.S. live on the coast. What kinds of policy decisions are is the president going to have to approach here? Right. So a lot of you're already seeing a lot of discussion of these issues in the Obama administration. How much should the federal government help local communities prepare for sea level rise or adapt to sea level rise? How much emphasis should the federal government put on protecting coastal communities from sea level rise versus creating policies that at some point say, you know what, it's time to retreat? you got to give up the coastline. The fact that there are so much infrastructure along our coasts, roads, sewage treatment plants, military bases, ports, power plants. I mean, this, this is trillions of dollars of infrastructure that is potentially threatened over the long term by sea level rise. Somebody in the federal government is already thinking about how we 
prepare for this. Right. All right, let's move on to one that I was kind of surprised to see in the package, and that's brain health. Yeah, so Meredith Wadman, our neuroscience reporter, suggested that brain health is going to be a continuing issue for the federal government, and it's only going to get to be a bigger issue. So the first thing I think about is the aging population. What's going to happen with people as they get older, dementia, Alzheimer's, that kind of thing? Exactly, and that's one of the big ones. Alzheimer's is a huge issue And other forms of dementia are a huge issue for our aging population. As the population ages, the number of people struggling with dementia are going to go up. How do we pay for their care? Can we do basic research that might help us put off dementia or stop it entirely? These are sort of resource allocation issues for the federal government. We pay an enormous bill through our health care programs for caring for people with dementia. That cost is probably going to go up unless we can figure out ways to get around those costs. And so the president is going to face that, also going to face how much money should we put into basic brain research. The Obama administration had their big brain initiative. The next administration is going to be under a lot of pressure from patient groups to increase spending even more on basic research in an attempt to avoid these problems. So yeah, brain health is big, but it's not just Alzheimer's. It's also basic mental health. We know already, for example, a lot of people in our prisons are suffering from mental illness, and that's why they end up there. We know that in classrooms, learning disabilities are a major issue, and that imposes costs on society. And autism is also... Right. So you've got Alzheimer's at one end of the lifespan, and you've got autism at the other end of the lifespan, where children, their brains do not develop in ways that allow them to interact with the world the way most of us do. And and again, you know, these are issues of how much do you spend on research, how much do you spend on care, other kinds of interventions. So the last science lesson I want to bring up is kind of a meta science lesson. It's what should the president know about risk assessment and how good or bad the population in general is at risk assessment? Yeah. So this is a fascinating issue. And we asked our contributing correspondent, Greg Miller, to look into this. The basic issue here is that human beings are terrible generally at assessing risk. We tend to overestimate the risks that are right in front of us. The classic example is we think about terrorism. From a policymaker's perspective, terrorism is a very difficult issue because on one hand, actually, terrorism kills very few people. Since the September 11th terrorist attacks, basically a few hundred Americans have died from terrorist attacks on domestic soil. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of people are dying from heart disease or millions are dying from heart disease. Tens of thousands are dying from car accidents. Yet we take these risks in stride. And we focus very much, we become very fearful about terrorism. This gap in risk perception poses a real challenge to policymakers. Because on one hand, you want to be very responsive to public opinion and public concern. On the other hand, you want to put in place policies that are cost-effective and actually do something to address the problem. You also want to avoid putting in place policies that are actually counterproductive. You know, when it comes to issues of law and order and crime, You want policies that are actually going to be effective and don't overreact to a perceived risk, but also do not underreact to a perceived risk. Uh, So Greg takes on this issue that, that human beings, we misperceive risk constantly, and that can have ripple effects into policy. So Greg is actually, what is he, a psychology and neuroscience reporter? Yeah, Greg used to be our neuroscience reporter at Science. He he's he writes about all kinds of things, maps, the brain. He's very talented. Well, I was trying to get at the point that this is a psychological issue that yes. people need to overcome. And I, I think that this is a lesson that every president really needs to think through. 
Right. And, you know, the last point Greg makes is presidents have to be really good at risk communication. Mm. And risk communication comes down to trust. If the public trusts you, it is much easier to prepare them for risks and to be ready for when they occur, whether it's a natural disaster or a terrorist attack or a disease outbreak. Okay. Well, David, do you want to mention a couple of other issues we touch on in the package and we'll let people go visit the site and read about them? Yeah, there's just three other issues. We look at the challenge that artificial, uh, big advances in artificial intelligence are going to pose to policymakers, whether it's a self-driving car or a weapon that makes a decision about when it should fire and potentially kill somebody. We also look at the role that evolution plays in the emergence of new diseases and new pathogens and the fact that, you know, it would be good for the president to understand that evolution is always occurring and that actually poses challenges to us, whether it's new crop diseases, new human diseases, all kinds of things like that, antibiotic resistance. And the last issue we deal with is uh, gene editing. There's a new technology called CRISPR. It uses an enzyme and some other machinery that bacteria develop to fight off viruses. But what it allows us to do, scientists to do, is to snip the genome of any organism very accurately. So you can snip out pieces of DNA. You can insert pieces of DNA. And so this allows very fine-tuning of organisms. It also poses tremendous ethical and regulatory challenges, however, because you know, on one hand, the ethical issue is, for example, if you wanted to CRISPR a human embryo to save it from a disease, any change you make in that embryo will then be passed along to the children. And so it's essentially a permanent change in the genome, and uh, that raises a lot of ethical questions. And on the regulatory side, the U.S. government has traditionally regulated genetically modified organisms. It has regulated those organisms where you insert a piece of foreign DNA, not where you're simply changing the existing DNA of the organism. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has already said it's not going to regulate crispered crops under these traditional rules. But some people are saying we need a whole new regulatory framework for dealing with this new wave of biotechnology. Thanks, David. David Malikoff is a deputy news editor here at Science, and he manages the policy blog Science Insider. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.